to Strat News Global. I am Subrat Nanda, and joining me from Bangkok is Dr. James Gomez, Regional Director of Asia Center, to talk about the turmoil that Myanmar is currently going through. Dr. Gomez, welcome to the program. Thank you, and good to be here. Military rule isn't new to Myanmar. What's different this time around? Well, I think the key indicator is really the use of the internet. Um, in the last, you know, 10 years since uh, Myanmar opened, uh, the rise in internet penetration has increased. So is the use of social media. And because of that, you have a lot of young people who are online and are using this technology for mobilization. There are reports of China helping the junta with sophisticated tech to curb online space for protesters. How true are those? Uh, at the moment, we do not have uh, public information that we can independently verify that, that China is indeed supplying those kinds of equipment. But the provision of sophisticated equipment to spy, to jam, has been long in the making with Myanmar. I think even a couple of decades ago, Singapore was one of the early countries to support Myanmar in this regard. So uh, the fact that, you know, the speculation, you know, uh, that China is supplying such in, uh, equipment uh, needs to be investigated further and independently verified. There's also talk about some cybersecurity law that the Junta is coming up with. That's right. Uh, the cybersecurity law that the Junta has proposed is part of a slew of laws relating to the internet that has come across in Southeast Asia. In this regard, Myanmar is playing catch up. It is using this particular juncture in its history because of the important role of the internet uh, to introduce uh, this law. Uh, what this law would do, this is a super law, meaning that any transgressions uh, put out over the internet can be sanctioned by using this law. However, we need to make a distinction when we discuss uh, internet and laws. There are two approaches. The one that we are very familiar with and something uh, your listeners in India would also be aware is uh, content censorship meaning that uh, you know, laws are introduced uh, in order to censor disinformation, fake news, hate speech uh, online. Uh, pressures have also been placed both legally and informally on internet companies. And again, uh, we are very well familiar with the forwarding services of WhatsApp that was drastically reduced. I think this is the type of law that is being rolled out uh, in Southeast Asia and elsewhere. But what is different is a new type of law, a, a law that shuts down the internet. And this is the interesting development about Myanmar because this time they are not after content. This time they are after the infrastructure. So they take two approaches. One approach is to throttle the speed of the internet. So any service, any social media platform, any e-commerce service that is provided over the internet is slowed down and the aim is to frustrate the users. The second approach is a total shutdown and this is a more targeted shutdown 
Uh, Myanmar has experimented uh, targeted shutdowns in the city of Rakhine and Chin, uh, but now uh, uh, Myanmar has introduced it nationwide. So this is the new sort of authoritarian um, innovation when it comes to you know policing, uh, using laws over the internet. The scale of the protests this time around, despite the violent crackdown on Sunday, it's, it seems to come as a surprise. What do you think is the reason? Again, I think uh, we will have to rely on the internet and youth as an explanation. This is not unique to Myanmar. It is also relevant when we discuss Hong Kong as well as yeah. Thailand. Simply because uh, the number of youth uh, are large in these countries uh, and also they are the internet generation. That means these are the generation usually born in the 90s, mid 90s onwards. And because they have been socialized on the internet, uh, they do not have the kind of you know, political barriers and anxiety that you know, older folks may have in terms of being socialized in self-censorship. So young people, therefore, not only are they numerous in numbers, they are also very literate on the internet. As a result, you, you see them becoming uh, one of the important uh, frontliners. But here, I would add a word of caution, simply because um, the whole region and uh, the rest of the world uh, is being impacted by COVID-19. And COVID-19 is a particular crisis. And what is interesting about crises, especially in the context of Southeast Asia, and we have had a few uh, medical and non-medical, an example would be previously SARS, we had tsunami, natural disaster, and we also had the ripple effect of September 11. What happens in these uh, crises is it leaves an authoritarian residue. So with regards to COVID-19, young people and the internet, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is to recognize the authoritarian residue that COVID-19 will leave behind. This authoritarian residue that COVID-19 will leave behind is one of surveillance because many states have rolled out tracing and tracking applications and these have been used you know, extensively and in an extended manner. So as a result, post-COVID, uh, the observations are states will continue to keep them and use them as a mass surveillance technique. So what will happen to young people and the internet is they will become the most surveilled generations of our time. And in this way, uh, they have a strong tool to keep the young voices at bay when it comes to democratic transition or protest during times of political crises. Would you say that the popular discontent against the military is also adding to the scale of the protests, given that it was also reflected in the public mandate uh, given in the November elections? Yes, certainly. Uh, I think the principal gripe with the military, and this is a gripe that has been going on uh, several decades, uh, and if we go back one decade earlier, as the country went for an electoral uh, uh, transition, yeah. uh, the gripe with the military was there was 
only a small oligarchical elite that was benefiting from the economic deals it was making with those states and companies who were willing to do business with the junta. So there was some unhappiness that the economic or financial pie was limited to a few. So part of the strategy of the military junta was to enlarge the pie and spread that out. Now, what has happened is that pie has now very much slightly only extended to the Bama Buddhist elite. And the NLD represents this elite. So this is also part of the problem because the ethnic communities, the ethnic nationalities, including Rohingyas, who are one of them, they are very much not included. So hence, we we also see another emerging problem with the crisis. Um, the NLD has, you know, uh, announced a union government, a kind of an interim, you know, uh, government in contestation to the military junta. Uh, but that is also has to be sort of reviewed and investigated uh, critically, because uh, if we give the NLD a blank check, uh, that's another one-party state in the making. Uh, so any call for recognition for a union interim government led by the NLD must come with it, you know, conditions that such a interim union government must be inclusive uh, with voices, you know, shared among the other ethnic nationalities. What would you say about the timing of the coup? The military cited voter fraud. Is it such a big issue given that the constitution already gives the military dominating powers? So why effect a coup and draw international attention? Well, I mean, the um, military had always wanted to, uh, you know, continue power through a civilian veil. Uh, uh, They had the Union Solidarity Development um, Association, uh, a forerunner to the Union Solidarity Party, uh, which lost terribly in the elections. So uh, to understand Myanmar, we need to uh, have a comparison with Thailand. In Thailand, yeah. the military junta took power in 2014. And then after a couple of years, they discarded those you know who were in the executive position. They discarded their uniforms, put on civilian clothes, and went on to form the Palang Chat party, which then won, you know, a significant number of votes during the last elections, uh, outlawed uh, a strong contender in the future forward party, deregistered the party, went into coalition with other, you know, um, similar, you know, authoritarian featured parties, and is now in power. So we will see a similar scenario evolving in uh, Myanmar. So the military will call for elections. It will neutralize the leadership of the NLD. It may go as far as even outlaw and deregister the NLD and uh, allow its uh, affiliated party, the USP, to gain a dominance. 
uh, that's the civilian strategy of military juntas. And it's not unique um, to Myanmar. We already have an example taking place in Thailand. The junta's representative has already met the foreign ministers of Indonesia and Thailand last week. ASEAN foreign ministers are meeting today. What can we look forward to? Well, I, I think, you know, you can only look forward to more rhetoric. Um, ASEAN itself partly is incapacitated. I mean, uh, it, you know, the whole elite in Southeast Asia is a crony elite. They speak to each other, right? So uh, the, the crony elites, you know, network with each other. They do business. They send their children to the top schools. Uh, this is the real ASEAN. So you will continue to hear rhetoric the empty rhetoric of diplomacy, uh, but ASEAN never had a track record of turning any of its member on even keel to do the right thing. They continue to hold on to the non-interference policy and they are keen to do business. Uh, in that regard, you know, um, these behavior of the ASEAN states uh, can be matched with other states in the wider Asia region uh, are also similar. As long as the regional powers in larger Asia take a rhetoric democracy or a rhetoric-based diplomacy without sanctions, uh, it will have no impact on the military junta. The United States has imposed targeted sanctions on the Myanmar's military, similar to what it did in the 1990s, which didn't deter the junta then. Will it work now? Well, again, I think in those days, uh, the country was very close. But in those days, China was also not as uh, strong as it is today. So because... Uh, uh, China's presence is so large and domineering, um, uh, that is why it will necessarily negate uh, the, the U.S. Uh, the, the other power that, you know, uh, observers look out for in the region is always India. But yeah. Indian for, foreign policy engagement has always been muted. Uh, it, it, you know, its foreign service is always cautious and conservative and it is really not out there. Uh, India's, you know, foray into Southeast Asia is also very silent. You know, if you actually walk the ground in uh, Southeast Asia, except for the anomaly of Singapore, uh, you know, uh, most, you know, people on the ground and, you know, policy wonks, right, are indifferent to India because India just doesn't have a good articulation of its engagement. Uh, the look is act is policy is not well heard of and, and not well implemented and neither does it put the dollar behind its foreign policy. So it's, uh, you know, unfortunate. Uh, should India spring as a surprise, a positive surprise and uh, play an active role? I think that would be most welcome. But to date, you know, uh, the expectation of uh, foreign policy engagement on the Myanmar front as far as Southeast Asian nations and people are concerned, is something they don't expect of India. Uh, if India does so, they will be, I think, positively surprised. On that note, Dr. Gomez, thanks very much for your insights. Thank you. Happy to be on your program. Thank you.